This is KMUW Wichita Public Radio. Engage ICT is a community engagement event of KMUW Wichita. The following event took place on November 13th at Roxy's downtown. All right, welcome you guys. Good evening. Thanks for coming out to Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. I'm Sarah Jane Crespo and very glad to see all of you here tonight. We have a very interesting panel for you tonight and uh, a really a fascinating topic. So uh, join in. Uh, you should have question slips in front of you. Feel free to ask as many questions as you like, and we'll see how many we can get to. Um, let's, before we begin, thank our partners in Engage ICT. First of all, Roxy's downtown, the venue and the food. Roxy's does an amazing job for us every time. Just great snacks up there. You all can just munch and learn and uh, have a good time. Uh, the other wonderful partner that we have every month is the Wichita Public Library. A big thanks to them. Every month they provide further resource guides on all of our topics and there are some really interesting books and videos, things that you, know, you can just click on a link and see things, uh, things that are available at the library, online articles, all kinds of stuff on all of these topics. So take advantage of that. We have them at our info table over here um, from for tonight and then from prior events as well, um, as well as some other goodies there at the table. So. There we are. Um, now to start out, I'll let all of the panelists introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about themselves and how they've come to be doing the work that they're doing as well as their involvement in uh, social media activism. So we'll start with Madeline McCullough with WSU. <laughs> You're okay. up. Welcome, up. Madeline. Thank you. Say, so is this working? Yes. Uh, so yes, welcome. My name's Madeline McCullough. I would say my... Um, Activism started with advocacy. I started out, I have a son with Down syndrome and when he was ready for kindergarten, and I assumed he would be fully included in a regular education classroom as is federal law, um, this district said, no, we don't think so. So it started out as a family project, I guess I would call it, to fight USD 259 to keep him in a regular education classroom. That um, experience <laughs> lasted six years. At the end of it, we lost, uh, but I'd learned an awful lot. And one of the main things I learned was that doing something just as a family in a very tight circle, even though I had lots of other parents telling me that how important what I was doing was going to be for their children, I didn't ask for anyone to partner with me. I didn't ask anyone to show up at hearings with me other than his dad. I had an attorney, uh, but I did not make it a movement. Uh, the second thing I did was fighting can care. I got a little more brave on that one when our insurance system for uh, kids with medical cards was going to the can care system. I was against it, and I started an online movement. And I learned a little bit with that. I ended up uh, starting a moveon.org petition that eventually uh, had 1,688 signatures on it. Went to Kathleen Sebelius when she was uh, head of uh, Health and Human Services, but again, obviously didn't stop can care. From there, um, in, I live in Riverside, and in our neighborhood, there's a very small piece of land that was threatened, initially threatened, 
Uh, right on the river, the, there was a brand new owner of the land that wanted to build a five-story subsidized housing that was going to be very crowded in, a, in an already very congested part of Riverside. The structure was going to be out of character with the neighborhood. Uh, the traffic was going to be increased. It was going to be dangerous. And I was the only homeowner notified because I was within 200 feet of the proposed development. Uh, I was the only homeowner notified of this proposal. I opened up my mail about midnight one night and at three o'clock in the morning I was still trying to ferret out on the internet what was going on. Uh, by Sunday morning, that was on Saturday night, by Sunday morning I had a flyer created and I distributed um, just on my block. But from there, we organized and we definitely used social media. We started a Facebook group. We used the existing Facebook groups that are already established in Riverside and North Riverside. We mobilized 100 people to show up at the district advisory board meeting, which is the first step in stopping something like that. Uh, they said the normal attendance was six people, so to get 100 people there was really a big deal. And we stopped it. The developer was there, the landowner was there, and when he saw how many people were there and against this idea of his, that night he said, um, I don't want to make this many people mad. I didn't know you'd be so against it. I thought you would think it was a wonderful thing. Uh, never mind, I'm not going to do it. Uh, about a year later, he hired a developer for that same piece of land to... Um, he wanted to monetize his property, we understand that. His next idea was a 110-foot uh, cell phone tower. Well, we were, again, we were already a still organized and keeping in touch with each other from the first movement, so we uh, started a new Facebook group, it had a shorter title and a, and a bigger following, and we fought the cell phone tower. Um, that, too, we eventually won, but it was a much tougher battle. People were not so clear on how they felt about it. There were people who thought it was going to help their service, which it was not. We had to do a lot of education. Uh, we had to face a lot of people that were not in agreement with us. But eventually, we prevailed, and the uh, city council did not... Um, pass, or what, what, do you, what do they do? They, they didn't um, allow, thank you, uh, they didn't allow the conditional use permit for that piece of land to have a 110-foot tower built there. It was going to be right on the river, within the river corridor, um, not only in a historic neighborhood, but it would have been the first industrial development within the river corridor, so we stopped that. We're still fighting things. The next thing on the horizon is the same developer wants to put a 110-foot uh, cell phone tower within, right in a neighborhood, like essentially across the street from houses. So we're still looking at that. Uh, so that's kind of my journey. So your group is busy. Group is busy. busy. We, we kind of, you know, we have these lulls. We, we win something and we go, oh, okay, now we get to regroup until we hear the next thing. I would say the name of the group is the uh, Little Arkansas is the Little, Ar Little Arkansas River Coalition. Uh, so we're not just like against cell phone towers. What we are trying to protect is Riverside and the uh, River Corridor for all of Wichita as an asset to the city. And so beyond your personal uh, dealings with activism, you also are uh, at the Elliott School at WSU and 
teach about social media, and how does that kind of tie into this? Uh, well, it helps me out a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I teach uh, integrated marketing strategy where we, we uh, I, I talk to students about knowing who your target audience is, having a very clear message, knowing what you your end goal is. You should have a, an objective to your, whether it's marketing or a cause. Um, we talk about uh, the different platforms and I, by knowing the audience, for example, in the, um, the neighborhood things that we took on, a lot of people in Riverside are on social media, but some of our older uh, neighbors are not. So it was a combination of social media, and then through social media, we also found people willing to go door to door and to distribute flyers. Um, and then we were also, uh, anytime the news was willing to cover it, interview us, we were willing to talk to them. Thank you. Welcome yes. to the panel, Madeline. All right, Joseph Shepard is with Newman University now. Um, tell us about your journey and uh, advocacy from, from your side of things. Sure. Well, good evening, and thank you all for being here, and thank you for having me on this panel. Uh, my name is Joseph Shepard. I'm originally from San Diego, California, moved to Wichita about seven years ago and found my home away from home. Um, and very happy to say that I found my home away from home. And I found my home away from home um, initially through my church, St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. I just wanted to ask what brought you to Wichita as well. Yeah, St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. My father is, is a pastor. He has served in the ministry for over 25 years now, if not more. And uh, in our denomination, the itinerancy or appointment is only good for a year. So needless to say, I moved around quite a bit as a child. Um, so it feels good to be settled <laughs> in a place for uh, quite a bit of time. Um, but my father was sent to St. Paul, and one week prior to school starting at Wichita State, I decided to apply and attend. Um, there I met several people that just made me feel welcome, and I felt like there was a family environment. Um, moving from California, it was a bit of a culture shock for me, moving to Kansas. Um, and it took some time to get adjusted and used to things and um, didn't necessarily know my potential as a leader when I came to Wichita State. Met a young woman by the name of Danielle Johnson, who is uh, the wife of Brandon Johnson, who's Wichita City Council District 1 council member. And uh, she told me that I had the potential to be anything I wanted to be and really taught me the importance of speaking up and speaking truth to power and being unapologetic about who we are and walking in our truth not only for ourselves, but to inspire people who may be looking up to us. Um, so during my time at Wichita State, got highly involved in student organizations, and I decided one day, I remember waking up and being a member of the Senate on Student Government Association, and remember saying, there's no one that looks like me in leadership positions here, um, and that made it very difficult for me to believe that someone was advocating for me at the table. And so. I literally woke up and said, I'm gonna run for student body president. I ran against a very noble individual who I still respect and have a great relationship with today by the name of Dalton Glasscock, um, highly involved in the Republican Party here, and I won, to my surprise. Uh, loved it so much that I ran for a second term, and to my surprise, I won that second term. But I say all of that to say it was during those two years, those two rough years in my life, that I learned the importance of activism and where and how speaking truth to power can truly create a change for not only yourself, but for the generations who come after you. Um, we advocated for marginalized and underrepresented students to have access to 
things that they didn't necessarily have the access to, but that started with social media. And that started with being able to share that narrative and to, to share a clear narrative of why we were doing what we were doing and why we felt it was necessary. Um, to raise the heat, but raise the heat to a level in which we could still be productive. Um, and I'm very proud to say that we did that because now Wichita State has their first African-American vice president. Now Wichita State has an associate vice president for academic affairs who's an African-American woman by the name of Kay Mock Morgan. And I truly believe that that is because of the fight and the activism that students put up at Wichita State. And I think that my alma mater is, is better for it. I'm now at Newman University as the director of multicultural engagement. And so now I'm looking forward to working with this phenomenal institution and its administrators to propel students forward. Can you describe a little bit what you mean about speaking truth to power? Just want to get to that real quickly before we go on. Absolutely. I, I think that activism is being intentional about what your purpose is and being intentional about um, speaking up and being bold and unapologetic. So when I say speaking truth to power, I think that there are gonna be times where there's a lot at stake, um, but I think our moral obligation is to always do what's right and to always say what we feel is right, even when it's uncomfortable and even when the risk and the stakes are high. Thank you, welcome tonight. Our next panelist is Shay Blevins with Gretemann Group. Tell us your story, Shay. I am the digital strategist at Gretemann Group, so the majority of my work is done online and it is for marketing and communications, so my career is integrated marketing communication. Um, I think my activism has uh, just begun really in the last couple of years. I'm a member of the Junior League of Wichita and I am on the Child Advocacy Committee. We are, um, our focus area as a junior league in Wichita is the uh, awareness of child abuse and the intervention and prevention of child abuse in the Wichita community. Right now, I am the manager of their Facebook page, um, the childabusewichita.org Facebook page, as well as the Twitter account. And because we are a league of volunteers, um, these, these roles change every year for us. I have been lucky to stay on the Child Advocacy Committee for the last two years, and it's really where my activism has, has grown. Uh, are you from Wichita? I am, well, I'm from Valley Center, Kansas, which is like 20 minutes north of here. Uh, so practically, yes. <laughs> I, I went to Wichita State University. I was going to be a journalist, but I graduated in 2010. And if anybody remembers 2008, 2010 was when all of the newspaper jobs were no longer available. So I went to grad school instead and I studied um, communication research with an emphasis in media. A lot of my research was to how people use uh, social media, YouTube, um, and, and how it affects uh, us. Specifically, um, YouTube's effect on uh, bullying in, in schools. And did you get involved in social media kind of as each thing came out, when Twitter came out? Are you, are you in the <laughs> forefront of all of that? I, I think so. I was a, I don't, I'm not a digital native. I was a digital pioneer. Um, you know, when I got my first cell phone, I was 16 and it was like a box. Um, and you know, you could break it in half if you tried. Uh, <laughs> that's not the same thing anymore, but uh, I, I launched into Facebook when I, when I went to college and um, Les Anderson was my uh, professor of journalism and he made me write a blog. 
and it was appalling at the time, but it, as I have grown and as media have grown, you, you learn that this is the way that we communicate now. And in order to have a conversation with each other, with our leaders, with our communities, we have to be in these spaces. And that's a lesson that uh, I had to learn a little bit the hard way because I didn't know what I was doing at the time. Thank you and welcome to the panel. Our last panelist for the evening is Diana Hartman with Wichita Area Sexual Assault Center. Uh, Diana, tell us uh, your story and the work you do and uh, your involvement in uh, social activism. Well, um, I have slowed down a lot in social activism, actually. Um, I started out, I left Wichita in 19, I was born and raised there, I left Wichita in 1985, married a Marine, went, just kept going, moving all over. Um, in 1996, he went to telecommunications school. So we got online in 1996, which was uh, a few years after the internet actually came to be. Um, but we were fairly early when there were only a few million people online, not like now where there are a few hundred million. I learned pretty quickly through internet relay chat, which was the bare minimum social media that existed at the time, how to communicate with others online from all over. And with hundreds and hundreds of messages scrolling by, you could pick out different things that were happening, different activities, different uh, activisms that were occurring at that time. So I kind of got into that a little bit. And unfortunately, we were, uh, at that time, we were stationed at Marine Corps Logistics Base Barstow. Anyone who's familiar with Barstow knows that you are uh, in nowhere land out there in the middle of the desert. Um, but I took a lot of uh, the stuff that I was doing online, took it with us to uh, back to North Carolina where we had come from um, at Camp Lejeune. Uh, from Camp Lejeune, started doing some stuff with special needs kids because I had a special needs uh, child at the time. So started doing some activism with that. Uh, also domestic violence activism, especially within the Marine Corps because it is so prevalent still, and it was uh, ignored at the time, uh, as was child support and things of that nature within all military branches. From there, I went to, uh, we were stationed in Germany. Um, that was right after my husband had come back from Iraq the first time. So while in Germany, uh, Numerous friends of mine and I went to Longstreet Regional Medical Center on a regular basis to visit the wounded that were anywhere from 18 to 24 hours out from combat in Afghanistan at that time, at that time Iraq, um, and also from uh, different other uh, areas of the world, specifically Senegal, Djibouti, uh, other African nations. Uh, some from the med, the med floats that were out in the middle of the Mediterranean, in the Adriatic Sea, et cetera. So these people were coming in wounded, freshly. They were also being ignored. So lots of people were very happy to see them come home and celebrated them. And then they started ignoring them. And then polit politicians started ignoring them. They would use them as uh, photo opportunities, but they weren't actually uh, giving them what they deserved as far as healthcare, as far as attention as far as um, what they needed to, to readjust. Uh, also, while in Germany, we did a lot of, I did a lot of work with uh, third culture kids, which are, as an example, my children uh, are 
were raised by my husband and I. He from Florida, my, I myself from Kansas. So that in itself is one culture. Then we went, then they were raised within the military cult, that's a second culture. Then the third culture, they were raised in Germany. My youngest um, had a hell of a time coming back to the United States. Uh, she, her first comment to me was, there sure are a lot of mattress stores here. <laughs> and th because there are just so, so many. I hadn't realized it till she said it. Um, but so my kids, uh, by learning different languages, by learning about different cultures, by traveling so much, um, it just became very difficult for them to come back here and to assimilate into what is almost entirely, not almost entirely, but heavily monolingual, heavily mono, monocultural for, uh, for those kids. They're not used to um, segregation per se. The only segregation in the military uh, is economic. So you don't get to say who you live next to. You don't get to say who you go to the commissary and see. You don't get to say who will be sitting next to you at the clinic. It's going to be all kinds of people from all kinds of places speaking all kinds of languages. Um, so that, that did help a great deal as far as trying to uh, get me out there and get me pushing along because for all I knew, this person speaking this other language was my new best friend. So I had to figure out a way to get past every single barrier as it came up. Uh, because I needed, you know, when you're networking, it's easy to network with somebody who speaks English. Maybe not so much with somebody who doesn't. So it's, you gotta get past all those barriers. So uh, while doing all that, I was also online doing different things for uh, different, different organizations, specifically with domestic uh, violence and sexual, most prevalently with sexual assault. So the reason I say I slow down now is because now I am working with victims, uh, with survivors themselves, as they present at the hospital, as they present at, on the crisis line. So uh, while I'm still heavily engaged in social media, have been since the very beginning of every single evolution of it, um, I'm not actually, I'm not actually uh, using it to, my, to what could be my advantage. Um, I will use it as a personal tool to tell people there is no rape season, there is no rape day, there is no rape time. That's, you know, unlike all the other crimes, that's, this, this one occurs all the time. So I will use it for things like that. But I don't actually use it um, to get others involved. I will school people, especially on Twitter, when they start coming up with these different myths about uh, sexual assault and things like that. Um, but so I have slowed down. I'm basically doing person to person in real life rather than so much online. The end. <laughs> um, do you, I don't know if you can speak to whether uh, compared to other countries, um, the social media activism in the US, do you find it to be very different? Or can you speak to that? I don't know what time frame it was, you know, when you were elsewhere. Germany is kinder with social media. They are also way more inclusive. Germans would say they're not. And I think the reason that they would say they're not is because they are still dealing with immigration issues. They're still dealing with, um, with in the impoverished. They're still dealing with the unemployed. But they're doing such a fantastic job, in my mind, with, they already had these huge systems in place 
so to the German mind, they're not doing great. To my American mind, they're doing fantastically. There's tons of room for improvement. And they do a great deal of social media outreach. So, you know, there is that. Interesting. Well, welcome tonight. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there are question slips. There should be all over. If you don't see one, you can kind of wave your arm and uh, one will magically appear. Um, and we will get as many questions answered as we can, but let's kind of dive in here. And um, if you all want to respond or, or pass either way is fine. Um, uh, I want to first just kind of get at um, sort of a definition of social activism, how activism and advocacy kind of, uh, you know, where, where they merge and where they differ and uh, how it's different online versus in other methods. Madeline, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Um, I've been thinking about this. Thank you for sending the questions ahead of time. And I thought, I think social activism is being the change you want to see in the world and bringing others along. Um, so that's how I use it. I Obviously, I use social media to do that in this day and age. But if I had been born 100 years ago, I think I would still be a social activist trying to make the world a better place. And advocacy gets uh, brought up almost every, you know, in, in almost every conversation about activism. Um, do you want to add something about that? Well, Where that's, those how, lines that's how my own journey with activism began. You know, you start out advocating for your child, and you start realizing how many other children need your help, and then you start realizing it's not just kids with disabilities. There's this issue and that issue, and. My experience with failure, uh, with my early advocating for my son, made me realize that the power was in groups and that as long as I was only advocating for him to go to school, I was lost. As soon as I was advocating that USD 259 should be in compliance with federal laws and that, oh, by the way, here's this whole Down syndrome parent group over here behind me, I started having more success. Anyone else want to add to that? Shay? I agree. I think um, with her, with the definition of social activism as activism together and, and and doing doing good together, I think the change, however, has been in in how we are delivering the message of act of our activism. Um, right now, anything you need is in your hand uh, instead of just on a desktop or on the television or just on the radio or in a newspaper. So it, it's faster, it's broader, it reaches more people, and the, the reaction is, is nearly immediate. You can get to thousands or millions in a day rather than 10 years ago when you could only reach a few hundred in a day, and that's still on those social networks. I think there also is change in who is reacting. When you look at historical activism before social media, you know the, you see the images on the television, you see the great images, the photojournalists taking in newspapers and uh, magazines. You see a lot of people who are in a generation before millennials. Social media puts that tool, that communication tool in the hands of everyone, including students in high school and um, even even individuals older than older than uh, older than 50, I think, is probably the cutoff there. But 
um, the people who are engaged now are, are vastly diversified than the people who were previously engaged. But um, there are drawbacks as well to the ability to spread that message so far and so wide. What would you say some of the drawbacks might be? I, I definitely think social media makes everyone a publisher. It gives everyone a voice, but it also makes everyone a publisher. So even individuals with more nefarious uh, motives also have a platform. Twitter is littered with bots. There's so many bots on Twitter, it's horrible. Uh, Facebook facilitated whether or not they did it intentionally or even knowing that they did it facilitated content distortion to interfere with our elections. I think the message that activists want to put out into the community to garner support, to spread their message of change, can also get drowned out by how many people are there also spreading their message of change or countering a message of change. You know, there's, there's polar opposites everywhere. On Twitter, there's just so many more of them. Um, and instead of one side or the other, it's which, which spoke of the wheel it is today that's spinning and trending and reaching more people. Um, so the negatives, the disadvantages of social media are, are in its reach as well. Uh, Joseph, how do you think you can reach past and make a difference? I mean, how, what were some ways that uh, you've seen to kind of cut through some of the noise? Or is that what you did? <laughs> so I, I think I was very intentional about making noise. And, and I think that one of the things that for me, being only 25, one of the things that I really, really focus on is learning and taking from the wisdom of my elders and those who have come before me. And the, one of the things that I, I learned from my elders and those who have come before me is that they were not afraid to make noise and they were not afraid to stand on the front line and they were not afraid to march down and, and do the March on Washington and, and do those things. And it's for that reason that they were able to mobilize unusual voices, what we consider unusual voices, which I know as underrepresented or marginalized voices. Um, but I also do think that we have to take that and we have to keep that in mind and use those tools and resources and those skills that our elders um, taught us to use while integrating the social media activism as well. And I think that's how you mobilize more people to support you and to be with you and to, to truly propel us forward. I think that we need the wisdom of those who have come before us and we need those skills of our elders because we stand tall today because of them. But I also think that we need the energy of the young people like myself. And I think when you take the two and combine them together, we're a force to be reckoned with. And so I'm intentional about making noise because I think that's what leads to effective change and sustainable change. So it's sort of a, a tool in the toolbox. It's not its own sort of way of, of uh, activism. Sorry. Absolutely. You're correct. Madeline, were you going to say something a moment ago? Well, uh, <laughs> as Joseph was speaking, uh, teaching on campus while he was the student body president, I can attest to the fact that he was not afraid to make some noise. Um, I admire that you weren't afraid to, as Kansans, we want everyone to like us. We like to be, yeah. I like that. Good job. Uh, what was I thinking about before that? I can't remember. That's okay. <laughs> Diana, did you want to add to that subject? Oh, I, Joseph, that was very well stated. 
I tend not to talk about how we older folk do things, how we immigrated into all of this. Um, I appreciate that you are, you know, speaking to the elder community. You are so welcome. <laughs> I wasn't on a part of that necessarily. I am, uh, I, I like new, 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 new. The newer it is, the more I like it. I, I left Wichita, took me 30 years to get back here. You no, know, I, th it's a good thing I did what I did, uh, married who I married, because I can't stand being in one place for any length of time. Um, so the more I can learn, the more I know about, the better I feel about it. Um, as a result though, uh, I did learn that um, when we first got online, I warned a lot of people that this internet that you're looking at, this new cool thing that a lot of other people my age thought it was a fad for some reason, um, it was the mirror of us. Already even then it was the mirror of us. So there was even then people in 1990s, early, early 90s even, that were saying, these all, these all, these, these things are all new to us. I, I don't know how they can be new to you. I don't know how racism and sexism and discrimination against the disabled. I don't know how any of this can be new. But okay, let's go with this 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 brand new information you just found, and let's go from there. So that that had a lot to do with my my getting into social activism in general, just because I didn't know there were people out there who somehow didn't know. Dan, I. Uh, I was thinking, I remembered what I was going to say. I think there is some personal responsibility too. And um, in our uh, coalition group, we each recognized each other's strengths and we took those roles. It'll be no surprise that I was the communication director. I was not the researcher uh, learning how to read law. I was not the uh, volunteer coordinator trying to mobilize people to spread flyers. I was the communication director. I put out the messages. I helped us as a team come up with a, a core message and a core goal. And I wrote all the Facebook posts and I took all the photographs and I made sense of things. And uh, the, the very beginning class that any of the um, communication students take at WSU is called writing for the mass audience. And people who think they can write and people who can write it's a whole different mindset to start writing with your audience in mind, knowing how your audience is going to see this and react to it. And so that's how I was writing our messaging. And I think an awful lot of messaging is uh, lost because people within the group understand what they're saying, but they haven't taken that next step to make sure that it makes sense to the public. That may dovetail into this audience question. Um, why do you think some movements get left out of the social media sphere? Would that be one thing that comes to mind? Definitely. Um, I also think our very first step, I found a small group of neighbors that all agreed with me, but our first step was to do research. Are we even, are we crazy? You know, are, can you fight a cell phone tower? Can we stop this developer? It's his land. I, do we have any basis for what we're doing? So we started by researching law and then finding out what other parts of this city have decided and what other cities have decided. And we built our case before we went public. We did our, we did our research. Um, I think, you know, if, you didn't, if we had not had that case built and had not had that confidence, we would not have had as clear a message 
and we wouldn't have had the confidence to face our detractors because we certainly had plenty. So that puts um, some of the uh, blame, if you will, on the organizers for why a, a movement might fail. Are there uh, outside forces as well? Does anyone else want to speak to kind of why some, some sort of just swirl down the toilet, Shay? I think there's... Sorry. <laughs> Bad analogy, I'm sorry. Oh, uh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, I think there are, uh, on, on social media, people tend to believe they're making a difference when they're not. Um, in order for social activism or any activism to work, the online message has to be taken offline. So if it's only ever on Twitter, if it's only ever a hashtag and it doesn't move beyond into an action, it's going to dwindle and it's going to, to sort of peter out and no, one, no one's going to keep it up if there's nothing to do. Um, it's sort of... You know, it's not enough to tweet when you can do something, just like it's not enough to voice your opinion when you can vote. So the action is the important part of, of what a social activism or any activism needs to accomplish. I can uh, chime in with the story. I have a, a group of friends on Facebook that were all complaining about Meads Corner building being torn down. And they were, I mean, there were a lot of posts about this and a lot of people involved and I finally chimed in and said turns out the people who can make a decision about this are not following any of you on Facebook to see what you think about Meads Corner. You need to start a petition and moveon.org is a real simple online petition. You can set up who it's going to go to and at what point and when we were fighting the cell phone tower we had a moveon.org uh, petition that every hundred names, every city council member and the mayor got um, an email from moveon.org. So it wasn't coming from us, so they didn't have to wonder if we'd been you know, adding fake names. Uh, it was coming straight from MoveOn and it was letting them know how the neighborhood felt. Um, Diane, I have a question for you. Uh, can you talk about any effects of the Me Too movement on the Wichita Area Sexual Assault Center? I, uh, and a lot of my colleagues, do not consider me to, to be activism per se. Uh, me Too was founded in 2006, not 2017, by Toronto Burke. It was, it is a, an effort to bring survivors of sexual assault together to share information, to share resources, to share stories, to get some validation. So Me Too, the reason I say not 2017 is because Alyssa Milano uh, tweeted out Me Too as a hashtag. And then suddenly it, you know, it blew up. So um, in that respect, yeah, I suppose it's activism. But Sexual assault itself, and Toronto Burke has spoken to this numerous times over the years, sexual assault intersects with every single part of the population. It intersects with every form of social activism, regardless of what it is. There is not a single person in this room who does not, who has not been impacted by sexual assault in some way, shape, or form. You either are that person, you uh, are related to that person, 
the survivor is your friend, neighbor, or coworker, or the survivor in your life doesn't trust you with that information. But every single person in this room knows about sexual assault, knows someone who has been impacted. Once you start talking to people about sexual assault, either as a survivor or uh, as an activist, you're going to very quickly find how it intersects with all of these other uh, social activists, all these other activisms. Is that correct? As a Sounds good. Yeah. So um, Me Too itself is not an activist movement. It is a huge, giant, global, now global, um, support group. Yay, somebody believes me, right? That's great. That's, that's nice and different. Um, and I don't, uh, I don't have to show proof to John Doe1234 on Twitter or Facebook for that matter. I, I just need someone to hear me and I just need someone to believe me. So once that's done, uh, then, then there are other issues behind that because since so many people are survivors of sexual assault and so many people are related to or friends with these with survivors, they also find out what other issues this person has to deal with, whether it's disability, uh, being, uh, being elderly, because yes, sexual assault impacts the elderly as well, at an alarming rate even. Uh, in the disabled community, again, an alarming rate. Uh, in the prison population, in, uh, in schools, churches, all of these things. So wherever you find sexual assault, if you, want to get, if you want to get involved in as many different activism things as possible, I recommend getting started with sexual assault because you will get all of them. Wow. Um, do you think that movements need uh, like an individual or a key figure to really catch on? Do any of you, I mean, Alyssa Milano kind of set that one on fire, but um, I, I, would, I would like to speak to that. Um, I, I think that a lot of people do need leaders. They need someone to follow, someone to ignite and inspire them. Uh, at the same time, there are other movements that don't. Uh, I was uh, just telling you guys earlier that uh, the group Anonymous, which has gone in and out of favor, um, Anonymous is a group of people online from around the world it changes, that population changes constantly and it is leaderless. It has been leaderless since the beginning. But they are like a flock of birds. Just, I wanna say swimming so badly. They're flying around the sky and you, it's unpredictable which way they're going to go. But they get done what they need to get done. They go in the direction they need to go and they all follow. And that is leaderless and a lot of times social activism itself acts like that. It doesn't, need a, doesn't necessarily need a leader. Tarana Burke is definitely, uh, she's definitely a, a, a leader for the Me Too movement. I don't remember how she said it, and I don't want to get it wrong. She's there when you need her, if you need her. Alyssa Milano, not so much a leader for Me Too, but is more of a, she, she will speak up for it. Um, whereas Tarana Burke is spokesperson, can speak to, knows what she's talking about, has experience with it. Uh, so, but then, you know, you've got these people that say, well, if you, you know, you're just, you're just sheep, you're just snowflakes following these, these people. 
And the people who say that, the people who say snowflakes and sheep also have leaders telling them <laughs> to say snowflakes. So pick your leaders carefully. Dan. Does anyone want to speak to that? <laughs> to any of that? Go ahead. I, I might. Um, I've been, I don't know that much about any of this, but my question is on, you said uh, the Me Too movement was not really a movement, and I think, but didn't it play a huge part in creating the awareness that developed the tipping point where action actually started taking place in a large scale? Especially on Twitter, uh, if you looked up the Me Too hashtag initially, after Alyssa Milano tweeted that out, there was, that, that hashtag um, refreshed about every .04 seconds there were that many stories coming out. So I'm not sure that Me Too itself uh, did that so much as it was all these survivors willing to come out and say, okay, will you listen under this? Because you didn't listen before, you didn't believe us before, so will you, will you believe us now? Will you listen now? Um, you, there, it, was almost, it, it was almost impossible to ignore the thousands of stories that were coming through every 60 seconds. Because there was a point when, and remember that this is global, there was a point when it was close to 15,000 stories a second. A second. And that kept on for hours. I think that that's a, that's a reality that's very difficult to ignore. So yeah, I can see where it would have active type movement and effect on these other things. But that's not, that's not how it started. That is how it has ended up so far. Um, any advice to getting a new movement off the ground? An audience question there as well. Shay, do you want to start that one? I'm, I'm coming from a marketing background mostly, and when we have a new campaign that we want to launch or a new thing that we need to get out to our audience, we follow certain steps. So we, we have a goal, we know who our audience is, we know how to communicate to them, we communicate to them, and then we measure. That's a really simplified way of saying, this is how you need to start a movement. I think activism, needs not necessarily a key figure or, or a celebrity to really get it off the ground, but it does need a, a group or an individual who's very passionate, who sees the social issue, who sees a political issue, and who is willing to put together that plan of action to spread that message, to garner support, and to, to advance change of that social issue. So if, it's, if it starts online, that's great. If it moves offline, that's better. And, and, and the end of it, <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of it, if, if what you can say you got out of it, that the community gets out of it, was your goal, there are a lot of activism movements that are not over 
and are probably not going to be over for a very long time, those goals are far off. But as you continue fighting and as you continue growing your movement, inch by inch, you gain some ground, vote by vote, you get a policy change. All of that needs just one person, one group to get it started. Um, I would also like to say it, the, um, the lone person who might start something just looks like a nut until they have their first follower. <laughs> So I've always been very appreciative of the first people that um, looked at my flyer in their mailboxes on Sunday morning and went, what? And the early and adopters. Yeah, early adopters. <laughs> Thank goodness for them. Um, I don't really have a clear memory of how we all found each other and how some people ended up in leadership roles. I just realized that uh, someone's here that did all the research. She learned to l read the laws and she was really my right-hand person. But you know, we, it took a village. Um, I remember at one point, one of the TV stations wanted to interview me, and it wasn't that I didn't want to be on air. It was that I didn't want it to look like the Madeline, <laughs> the Madeline fighting the tower movement, right? So we just kept delegating and bringing more and more people in, and that, I think, helped a lot. Joseph, can you uh, talk about some... Um, sort of hashtag movements that you think have been particularly effective? Yeah, so uh, hashtags, those are fun. Um, so one that comes to mind is, is not necessarily an issue in regards to social justice, but there was one that I've used quite a bit and I see quite of my, uh, many of my friends still use it, um, dispelling myths and stereotypes and that's hashtag black boy joy because there is a stereotype in this myth that as black men, you know, the media portrays us to be one way, um, violent, um, in gangs, you know, not educated or not well-spoken, not articulate, not well-dressed. Um, and I think that this hashtag that is used uh, for years now really allows people to see that um, we are not one dimensional, but as black men, we are multifaceted in that we have to continue to share that message with people so that they don't allow the media and what they see on television shows and what they see uh, on certain news stations um, dictate how they view us in real life. Um, I can't tell you how many times growing up many people, their jaws would drop um, when I use certain words that they felt should not be in my vocabulary. And so I think that using this hashtag in particular truly does dispel plenty myths. Um, and I think there's one, Black Girls Rock. Um, there's several that are happening. And I also think that beyond the hashtag, um, movements come from betting on yourself just getting out there and doing it, taking a risk on yourself. Um, County Commissioner-elect Lacey Cruz made a, a post just yesterday that said when she ran this race, she quit her job. And that's what many women did when they were running this season. We're seeing plenty of women getting involved in politics, but it's a matter of them betting on themselves. And by them putting their name on the ballot, Renee Duxler, Lacey Cruz, um, Becky Jennings, win, lose, or draw, that is activism. That is sending a message that we not only deserve to occupy this space, we are going to fight to occupy this space because we know that this is where we belong. And so I think that it goes beyond the hashtags. It, sometimes it's not even you necessarily saying anything. It's about you doing something. 
And so for Lacey Cruz and for Renee Duxler, in particular, those two women, they sent a message very loud and clear. And that has spread all across Wichita, all across Sedgwick County. And the election is over now, but many of us are still sitting back going, wow, wow. And of course, one won and one lost. And you talk about sort of betting on yourself. Um, and with all of these stories and ideas, it, it does seem like you, you're giving yourself. To some extent, you are sacrificing something of yourself. Even it, you know, with Black Boy, Black Boy Joy uh, hashtag, you're, you have, you're um, becoming vulnerable, you know. What would you say to people, all of you, to, um, to encourage that, well, I don't know if you even, if whether or not you want to encourage them, but what do you say to people when they kind of are wrestling over those choices, whether or not to sort of extend themselves or, or to make those sacrifices? I think whenever you're talking about activism and you're looking at creating a, a change, creating cultural change or change in general, you have to recognize that it's not about you. You're doing the work for a cause, not an applause. And so whether it's win, lose, or draw at the end of the day, um, you're doing it to send a message and to, to show people that, again, you belong to occupy certain spaces. You deserve um, equity and inclusion. And so I think, again, you have to take a, a bet on yourself. But more importantly, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because when we allow ourselves to lean into discomfort, when we allow ourselves to get comfortable with being vulnerable, we then allow other people to do the same thing, which then allows us to put our minds together and truly get down to the root of the issue. Does anyone else want to speak to that? Um, yes, because speaking to the discomfort and getting comfortable with it, I'm still not really comfortable with doing new things and hearing ever more languages I don't understand because it's just proving to me something I don't know. Um, but every time we moved, uh, we, we, moved it, we moved more than a dozen times. This will not be my last move, this one to Wichita. Um, I don't know how many more are in front of me. Every time we move, there is new people, new ways, because every city, even within the United States, has its own way of doing things. It was especially difficult for me to come back to Wichita not difficult, but just shocking. Because do you see Old Town? It did not look like that in 1985. That was just shocking to me. And I was a little surprised that Century 2 is still there. <laughs> I like it, That's though. That's a whole I do. other conversation. I, do. I, I like Century 2. Um, but getting, every time we moved to a different base, I would take my children on what we called get the hell out of here trips before GPS. So we basically just toured the town, going up and down different streets, everywhere in that town. The smaller the town, the easier it was, and the quicker it went. But eventually, we would, we would run into a private property sign or no trespassing sign. In, when it comes to social activism, some of those private property signs are wrong. They're just there to scare you off. Some of those no trespassing signs are there to keep your kind out. They're false. When uh, sometimes military families, when they get overseas, especially into a different country, whether it's, whether it's Korea, Japan, uh, Spain, or Germany, it doesn't matter. Um, they will often, a lot of times uh, women, mostly women, will not leave the base. 
they, will, they might shuttle between one US military installation and another, but they don't actually go out into the environment. And the Marine Corps especially, as many people know, has a motto, Semper Fi, uh, Semper Fidelis, always, flex, or always faithful. But they also have Semper Gumby, which means always flexible. And you have to be flexible. So if you are not uncomfortable, if, you're not, if you can't find a way to deal with being uncomfortable, I'm not sure that you're gonna grow as a person, much less help others grow within, their, within their, the issues they're having. So really the only way to help others is to push yourself, push out on that discomfort. Okay, so somebody is coming at you and they're saying, and you go, no, I don't want to hear that. I want to get away from that. No, you don't. You wanna get around that, don't stare. I have stood on many a German platform, speaking to my children in English and getting stared at like I have never been stared at before in my life. It took a while to get past that. But then you learn German and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, but then, you know, in Germany especially, there are many, many languages being spoken in that country. So it, it doesn't take that long to just go, oh, okay, well, that's just a part of my life now. That's, I hear things I don't understand. That's, a, that's the way it is. But here in the United States, this is sometimes seen as a cause for alarm. Somebody's dressing differently. Somebody's got something on their head. Somebody's got something different on their feet. Look at how they ride back and forth to work on their bicycle. Do you see how cold it is? What are they doing? They shouldn't be out there. So push it. Push out your comfort. Just keep doing it. Thank you. Um, how do you measure the cost or effectiveness of online activism with all of the trolls, harassment, and so on? Is it worth it? This is from an audience member. We have tons of questions, by the way, which is, they're great questions. Of course it's worth it. it you, if you're passionate enough to take on the cause, I think it's worth it. Uh, I think that's where working as a team comes in. The internal communication kept us going. The external communication kept them going and dispelled those myths. Um, I was thinking earlier when you asked what happens when they, what was it, Twir swirl down the toilet. And I was thinking my own personal frustration with the uh, DAPL, no DAPL, let's see, Dakota Access Pipeline. And, you know, it's a cause I believe in passionately, but I don't know what to do for them. They haven't asked me to do anything I can do. I can't, I can't move up to North Dakota. I can send money, but I was thinking how different it is that all I had to do for Lacey Cruz was vote. I could do that. So giving people something very realistic they can do. You know, our, our first, uh, when we were fighting the five-story building, all we asked people to do was come to the, the uh, district advisory board meeting. That's it. That's all they had to do. The second time it was sign a petition, make some noise with us so that we can get in front of the city council. Having very concrete things to do are important. And easy things. Easy the, things, yes, yeah. where they don't have to, well, I'm sorry, be too uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> well, the easier the better. No. I, w I wanna speak to that troll mm -hmm. bot thing. Um, it's pretty important to understand the difference between a troll and a bot. A troll is a real person who is out there to play uh, havoc with devil's advocate. So you can put out, I love horses, they hate horses, and they're gonna show you the ugliest horses in the world. They're gonna do whatever they can to shut you down. That is hilarious to them. I have engaged in trolling. 
from 1997, 1998. It was incredible fun. It's also very, but not, uh, not to shut anybody down, just to screw with people, just to see what I could get away with. It was a Bots are, are almost exclusively computer generated. And they, they are oftentimes operated in the background by human beings, of course, but, they, but engaging with what, if you even think it's a bot, block them. Block bots, do not engage bots. That's ridiculous. That's like, let, that, it's like getting down on all fours in front of a dog that's barking, on you, barking at you and barking back. It's that effective. So just block them. Trolls, I also, I also recommend, uh, instead, before you block, don't engage them. Uh, I do recommend going through their timelines, finding things that are offensive, that, that violate the terms of service for that platform, and reporting them. So you don't necessarily have to block them. However, if they've always already engaged you, they're going to keep screwing with you, so you might want to either mute or block them, one of the two. But uh, that is how you get the troll and bot population out of your online life so that you can stay focused on what is important to you. I would um, I, I agree with parts of that. Our detractors on the Facebook page that we started for our cause, uh, if they were respectful and their uh, posts were based in fact, we left them. But if they were, uh, we, le we left their posts up on our page. But our page was for us, and our page was for our cause. And so if it was someone just going off on a tangent, and it was all just their opinion, I took them down. Uh, I felt like, start your own page, <laughs> get your own group going. This group, what we're trying to do is motivate them for something that we all believe in. And the last thing we needed was someone detracting from our message. Um, do the negative social activism groups, like hate groups, affect the perception of all groups? Do you want to kick that one off, Joseph? What's your opinion there? Can you repeat the question, please? Do negative social activism groups, such as hate groups, affect the perception of all groups? Are they bringing everybody else down? You know, I, I wouldn't say so. I, I think that of course, we need to be careful with our messaging and what we say. And I, you know, there was a question earlier and I, and I wanted to chime in on, but I think it can tie directly into this one is, you know, former President Barack Obama said one of the, one of the biggest mistakes he made during his presidency was not mobilizing his opinion, right? So we make these decisions assuming that everyone understands our intent, assuming that everyone understands why we're doing it, assuming that everyone understands how this one decision is going to directly positively impact everybody and why it's for the common good or the greater good. And I think going back to these groups, we have to be willing to mobilize our opinion. Why are we protesting? Why are we rallying? Where is this gonna lead us? Why is it important to this group or that group um, and how is it going to produce results for X, Y, and Z? I think that when we're talking about activism, social activism, any type of activism, we have to be very um, intentional about mobilizing our opinion. And, and I think that hate groups are very intentional about mobilizing their opinion. And um, I think that that's something that, unfortunately, we can learn from those, those groups, is that they are very clear. This is why this hate group exists. 
here's what we want to do, here's our target, target audience, and here's how we feel this goal that we have, good or bad or indifferent, is going to help us reach X, Y, and Z. And so we have to be um, intentional about doing the same thing so that way we can mobilize others to get on board with us. Sorry, did someone else wanna? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, how can we keep social media activism from ruining friendships? Um, what, <laughs> is this a new phenomenon and what would you all suggest? I, the social activism isn't what kills friendships. Uh, what kills friendships is when I say, um, I think uh, rapists should be put in jail and then somebody in my family goes, oh, I think they should be given a second chance. And then they take that to an extreme, and then I go, well, you know, I don't need you at Thanksgiving anymore. <laughs> that's, that's how that is. And you, don't need, you don't need rape apologists. You don't need, you don't need people at the table who are not willing to, uh, to deal with the issues that every person at that table has to deal with. I'm not saying you have to talk about them to them. I'm not saying you have to bring it up. I recommend you don't bring it up. But you know, before you sit down to Thanksgiving dinner, if at July 4th barbecue, you know, these things were coming up and people were knocked down, drag out fighting, maybe don't bring them, maybe don't bring them. I would also say respect uh, an individual's page is their page. And just like you wouldn't go to their front yard and put your political signs in their front yard, I'm not really sure why people feel comfortable, I do not recommend, going on someone else's page to argue with them. Um, I've got family members that I have said, you know, great, I'm, I'm glad you feel that way so strongly, that's wonderful. And that is what your Facebook page is for. Please do not get on my Facebook page and proselytize your point of view because all that's going to happen is I'm going to take it down. Uh, respecting those boundaries, I think, helps a lot. Um, it's a, I find digital natives don't, aren't as bad about trespassing as older generation. I might have an older cousin that might maybe uh, trespass on my Facebook page a little too often. That, I totally understand what, what you're all what you're saying, uh, especially Diana, I, I, and I don't even know what I want to ask. It's just I almost, I, I wish there were some ways to sort of build uh, an understanding with people who, I mean, I, but I guess it just takes time. I mean, I don't know. Like, are, are there, you're, you face terrible. Well, I, uh, sexual assault specifically yeah. it divides people. It divides family. It divides communities. If the captain of the football team or the president of the company that provided all the jobs in this town, if these are the predators, it's gonna divide the town, it's gonna divide families, it's gonna divide neighborhoods. Because somebody's gonna say either that didn't happen or even if it did, it's not that big of a deal. Well, the thing is, that applies also to racial hate crime. If it did, if this person was lynched, maybe they weren't, maybe they were, but let's say they were. Is it really that big of a deal? Yes, yes, it's a very big deal. It's a big deal when someone is sexually assaulted. It's a big deal when someone is lynched. It's all a big deal. So if you're gonna sit down at a table 
for dinner or you're going to sit down on my Facebook page or anybody else's and start saying these things didn't happen or that they weren't that big of a deal when they happened, you're not going to be welcomed. Everybody has an opinion. Not everybody's opinion is valid. So um, I, I have a bunch more uh, audience questions. I want to get to a few of them here before we wrap up. Um, for those of us with disabilities or chronic health barriers, how can we use online activism to support causes meaningfully and effectively? We talked about a couple of tactics earlier. Maybe we can kind of summarize some of those. Go, why don't you start, Shay? Okay. I was like, oh, I don't think she can see me. Um, I don't have experience in that, but I can speak to finding the HQ, the headquarters for the movement that you want to support. Find the people who have the information, who have the tools, and, and get those tools from them, and then continue the message that way. Um, you know, there are chapters of movements across the country depending on, you know, what the movement is or, or who's involved, the Women's March for One. Um, you have to find your HQ and, you know, Facebook search, Twitter search, find them, talk to them, and get involved that way. They're not always going to be reaching out directly to you. They're reaching out to a lot of people. But if you show up in front of them and say, I want to do something, I want to help, and they come to you and give you tools, that's going to be the most effective way to, to advance that message and support a cause that you believe in. Anything you want to add? <laughs> I, I was just sitting here thinking, oh, that's funny. I don't know that I've ever gone out to try and fi find a, a movement. I've just start them. Uh, <laughs> but. I was thinking that in starting a movement, make sure that you have a, um, a, a clear purpose, which I've said, and uh, that your message resonates with people. Constantly checking with the people who are following you, or if you're following, just finding that, that relationship that makes you um, comfortable and secure in following or leading. Um, where do you all think this social element of activism and advocacy is heading? Can you make any predictions or uh, are there any clues to, to the future here? It's become very robust and <laughs> uh, kind of an interesting issue um, and a tool for the rest of activism. But do you think it will remain that way? Do you think it'll be more important or less important in the future? What are your thoughts? You look like you want to talk, Shay. Well, I, you know, activism has been around since the beginning of our political history, and social media might be the more recent version of how to communicate uh, your activism. Um, but I think social media will always play a part in, in activism. I think hashtags will always continue to play a part in activism as long as they are a tool of a platform that the majority of society uses. You know, we still write letters, we still make phone calls, we still sign petitions, we still, you know, we still march. We will always tweet. 
Um, I think we will always have Facebook pages that support our causes, and, and I think that's always going to be a place where people can come and, and, and join a conversation. What is next for social activism? What is next for, um, for continuing activism on those channels? I think it has, to, it has to come off the channel to advance any further. And like I said earlier, it, it's not enough to tweet. You have to do something. And it's not enough to be a hashtag or have a hashtag. You have to do something. Um, sometimes that's signing a petition. Sometimes that's marching. Sometimes that's voting. All of the time, it's probably voting. Um, and I can't tell you where it's going to go or what's coming next. Uh, technology is, is going to go into the virtual reality space here soon. And I don't know if that's what we're going to do uh, as activists. Um, but I, I think that it's always going to play a very big part as long as this is how we communicate with each other, with our, with our elected representatives, and, and with our communities. Do you think hashtags make it too easy for people kind of to, to feel like they're doing something that they, you know, they assume, oh, go if ahead. If they're only using the hashtag, if they're just, you know, they're saying, well, I think rape is wrong, me too. That's not effective, but if you're using it to draw attention to your message, to your information, to your resources, to your activity, then I think those the hashtags are good. It's a it breaks it down. It makes it it's more concise that way. But if you're an individual who this is not your own you know your own movement, but you sort of support it, um, is that a good way to do that, or is it just sort of um, I don't know, shouting into the void. I wouldn't want to discourage anybody from shouting into the void your support for a cause you're passionate about. Um, I, I think if you are, if you want to and if you can do something to advance change for a social issue, yes, use the hashtag, but yes, call your representatives, yes, vote. Um, do both because you can. Do both because there are people who can't. And that is why activism exists. And if you want to be a part of it, that's, that's how you get involved. I don't think the hashtag makes it too easy. Um, there are search terms on Twitter. So if you click a hashtag, you're going to get a bunch of results where those hashtags are also appearing. And then you're going to connect to a larger message. So the tool, it, it's a tool and it's a message. And so if you use them correctly, you can, you can participate without you know, without it feeling like you're just kind of going, oh yeah, that too. I would say even if that is all you can do, there are people that that's all they're going to do. Uh, but I, I know that I've welcomed them. Uh, we had someone who was actually on our board that didn't ever want to be on TV, didn't ever want to post anything publicly. He was very, very careful about his involvement with our group. But of course, we accepted that. It was his decision. We were happy for what he was willing to contribute. So yes, shouting into the void, I'm uh, all for that. I think uh, something that you care passionately, passionately about, why not? Um, any other ideas for people or tips for them if they have something that they care about that they would like to get involved in? Um, those were some really good tips right there. That's kind of how I like to, to wrap it up always at Engage ICT is how can, how can people make a difference? Um, there's a 
really wide spectrum of that I'm seeing with this. Uh, Diana, what would you like to share? If you want to shout out into the void and you want to be heard, be honest and transparent about what your cause actually is. The biggest reason that uh, hate groups are so prolific and is because they're so concise. Like Joseph said, they're very, you know exactly what you're dealing with when it comes to them up front. If you are coming from a position of privilege and you want your, so like your cause is to maintain that privilege, to maintain that advantage, uh, I don't, I, over the past 22 years, I have watched those kinds of things fall flat. The only reason that hate groups even can proliferate is because they don't give up, they're relentless. But they don't actually, they don't get as far as they could. They, d they just don't get as far as they could. Because there are too many of us going, all right, so are you complaining about the fact that your box is full and overflowing? Is this what I'm hearing? Because there are people over here who don't even have boxes. There are other people whose boxes are only half full. There are people with boxes that have nothing in them. So are you seriously complaining about your box being overflowing and that you want to maintain that? So when you're coming from a position of privilege, when your cause is coming from a position of advantage and a privilege, don't expect a bunch of people to go, oh, yeah, yeah, the, the rich people. I forgot about that poor population. No one cares. Well, apparently a lot of people care, but. So if you want it to work, make sure that your cause is honest and transparent and genuine, that, that you're coming from a position of this is what is needed, not this is what is wanted. Go ahead, Jessica. I, I would echo those sentiments, and I would also say uh, what someone told me a few years ago while I was student body president at Wichita State, K. Mock Morgan said, you know, my job is to kick open doors for you, but it is your responsibility to decide whether or not you are going to walk through those doors. And I think it is so important for people with the level of privilege to acknowledge that um, it is not your responsibility to feel guilty for that privilege. We know that privilege is unasked for and it's many times invisible, but it is your responsibility to expand the opportunities that you've been given to everyone that you come in contact with. And know though that when you get involved with activism and you truly wanna get from behind the keyboard and actually stand on the front line, understand that it comes with risk. So when you're standing on the front line or when you're on Facebook making statuses or on Twitter using hashtags, know that it's gonna come with the risk and be ready for that pop that comes with it. That means that there may be some employers who may see your social media history or some of the causes that you are fighting for and you may not get that job that you want. There may be some people who Maybe you're silent warriors, but don't want to be associated with you in the public eye. There may be some friends and organizations that you're very close with that are very close with the people who are oppressing you. And you have to be able to manage that, and you have to be able to take care of yourself in the midst of all of that. Um, I unfortunately had to learn those tough lessons at the age of 21 and 22, but I'm stronger and I'm better for it at the age of 25. And so I think it's important for us to recognize um, that because what we don't tell people is what comes after you have advocated and fought for a cause. And the reality is that you have a lot of sacrifice and a lot of risk 
on the line that may result in your future not going the way that you expected it to be. But when you're fighting and advocating for a cause that you believe in and your purpose is clear, that's all that matters. Amen. Thank you. Anything else anyone would like to add? I think that was a fabulous discussion. Thank you all so much for, for coming tonight. We really benefited from your knowledge. Let's have a big round of applause for our panel. Thanks for joining us for Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. Find more podcasts and videos at engageict.org. This show was hosted at Roxy's Downtown in Wichita, Kansas. The engineer is Mark Statzer, Beth Golay is the producer, and I'm the host. For KMUW, I'm Sarah Jane Crespo.